This week I uh, had a conversation with uh, someone, with someone, and uh, this person was expressing a concern about uh, somebody that he cared about, somebody that uh, he cared about, and, and saying, "Well, um, this person is is kind of struggling and, and, and going down the wrong wrong path," and I'm a little bit concerned about them, and so um, I. I uh, was assured that, uh, th- that this person had spoken with uh, the person in question that uh, they were concerned about. And I said, is there someone else who's able to, to walk with them and to be able to speak into their life and to be able to, to bring hope to them and to, to teach them of the ways of God and, and to help them to see that the path they're going on is, is wrong? And uh, the person said, yeah, there's, there's one person that I think uh, they've been kind of uh, doing life together with and, and walking with it as friends. And so I said, is that person, um, w- what's that person uh, say? Uh, they've been encouraging them and, and helping them uh, to, to see the truth and to see that they're living in the error of their way. And person responded and said, this is what they said to me. They said, yeah, you know what? Um, I don't feel like I need to say those things specifically, that what they're doing is wrong. Um, but I just feel like I want to embrace them and to love them and to walk with them and to support them. If they bring it up, I'll talk about it. But I just, I just want to love them into the embrace of Jesus. And I thought about that for a while. And I said, you know, that's really good. That's really good. And that's what a lot of people in our society would say is the right thing to do. Just love them. Just love them, and eventually they'll change. And I I think it comes from a culture that has been hurt by Christians who have taken the law of God and say, this is what you need to do, and they've spoken truth, they've yelled truth, they've declared truth, devoid of love in such a way that people have been hurt by it. They've been offended by it to the point where now many people are no longer willing to speak truth about the law into the hearts of people. In fact, they swing the pendulum away from the law and go simply to talking about love. Let's just love. Let's just love. Let's just love. And our culture, which is built upon the foundation of political correctness, loves that kind of stuff. The problem is what culture says is the way to go is oftentimes different from the way of Jesus. Because you see, kingdom culture, biblical culture is different. There has never been a time that I can recall in scripture where Jesus says, only love and don't speak truth. Only love and don't bring out the law. If someone's going astray, don't tell them they're doing wrong. Just love them into the kingdom. I don't think there's ever been a place where Jesus said that. In fact, the apostle Paul said, speaking the truth. In love, we will in all things grow up in him who is the head. Jesus came full of not grace or truth, not truth without grace or grace without truth, but he came with both grace, full of grace and truth. A lot of times, y'all, we're scared to tell the truth to people. We're scared to push law onto people because we think that it's going to offend people, that it's not politically correct because they're not going to take it well. They're going to think we're judging them. But if someone is in the middle of the road and they're about to get hit by a truck and you say, I'm just going to love them, love them, come to me, come to me, give me a hug. And they get hit by a truck because we're afraid of offending them. And that's not really the loving thing to do, is it? In fact, John Newton, who wrote the greatest, probably the greatest hymn that the world will ever know, Amazing Grace, this is what he said. He said, our failure to understand the nature and the design of the law of God is the root cause of the majority of the problems in the Christian life. Our failure to understand the nature and the design of the law of God is the root cause of the majority of the problems in the Christian life because we don't understand why the law was given, what its purpose is, why God gave us the law, our relationship to it. We swing the pendulum away from law, turning it into a bad word, and embracing simply love. But what does Jesus have to say about that? Because there were some people who were saying that's what Jesus believed. That's what Jesus thought. The law wasn't that important. He's just about love. Why would people think that? We're going to talk about that today. We're going to begin this new series, uh, continuing this overarching idea of being countercultural as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, but talking about particularly what it means as we look at about 10 consecutive teachings of Jesus that are very difficult for us to either embrace or to understand. Today, uh, we're going to look at the first of these things as it relates to the nature of the law. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. 
a very difficult passage because in it, in essence, Jesus says you need to be more righteous uh, than the Pharisees in order to enter heaven. Uh, Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20, Jesus clarifies the nature of the law and his relationship to it as it especially relates to the questions and the concerns that people in Jesus' day had uh, about his understanding of the law. This is God's word, Matthew 5, verse 17. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. So, Uh, Beginning for the next 10 weeks, we're going to talk about the next 10 sections in the Sermon on the Mount, in this huge calling card sermon of Jesus. And this is the first in this next section. And so in order to understand what's going to happen over the next 10 weeks, uh, I need to teach a little bit uh, before I can actually preach. So I'm going to lay some foundational stuff, and, and it may be a little bit didactic to you, but it's important to understand as we build upon foundation. So what is Jesus saying about the nature of the law, the law that many people in our culture want to disregard for the sake of simply loving everybody? What does Jesus say? The first thing he says is Jesus did not come. He came not to destroy, abolish, get rid of, replace the law, but he came to fulfill it. Yeah, that's pretty much direct quote from Scripture almost. So why, why would Jesus have to explain they didn't come to abolish the law? He says here, I have not come. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Why, why, does, he, why does he need to say that? Because the prevailing thought in those days was that that's what Jesus came to do. When you think of the word abolish, what do you think of? I think of an abolitionist. <laughs> that's not very uh, much of a stretch. I think of an abolitionist. When I think of abolitionists, I think of slavery. I think of Harriet Tubman. I think of Sojourner Truth. I think of William Wilberforce. And these days, I think of somebody like uh, Zach Hunter, modern-day abolitionists who want to put an end to slavery both in those days in the, six, uh, in the 1800s as well as today. That's what I think of. When you think of abolishing slavery, what are you thinking? You're thinking that there's this institution called slavery and you're trying to get rid of it in order that it is no more. And the thought that people had about Jesus was that there's this institution of the law okay, that everything about the life of the Jewish people was built upon and they're saying, Jesus, you came to get rid of that to replace that with something else, with yourself. And Jesus saying, no, 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 I haven't come to get rid of that. Why would they think that? Why would they think that? Because in Jesus' teaching up until this point in time, he's talked about a lot of stuff. He's talked about the nature of his kingdom. He's talked about what the blessed life is. He talked about what he came to be, but he has not yet talked about the law. And so there's people who think, well, here's this man giving new teaching, and if he's giving new teaching... And he's probably wanting to get rid of the old teaching. That's the first reason why people thought he came to abolish law. The second reason, and again, this is why this is important in the context of what we're going to be looking at in the next few weeks. Uh, in six times in the, next, uh, in the next couple chapters, Jesus is going to begin teaching using this phrase. He says, well, let's look at it, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Okay, so what is Jesus doing? Verse 21, he says, here's the Old Testament law. You have heard that it was said. And then in verse 22, he says, but I tell you that this is the truth. Six times he's going to say that. You look at verse 27. You've heard it was said, do not commit adultery. Verse 28, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already done that. So they're thinking Jesus is taking the law. And he's saying, you heard the law, but this is what I've got to say about it. And so the minds of the people are predisposed to think, well, here's this Jesus. He's come to replace the law. 
And Jesus is saying, don't think that. Don't think that. When you hear me say that, don't think that I'm getting rid of the teachings of the Old Testament Scripture. And then the third reason why is because there's a group of people who are utterly committed and devoted to the law. They were called the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. I know that our seventh graders learned about this last week. But they were so committed to studying it, to learning it, to understanding it, that they built their lives and devoted their lives to making sure that the law would not only be propagated and taught, but that it would not be broken either. And so they were meticulous about applying the law to their lives and then to lives of other people as well. They saw the law, okay, uh, honored the Sabbath. What does that mean? And so they began to create laws around that law in order to protect against potentially breaking that law. It's kind of, you know, it's like, uh, I forget what culture this was in, but, uh, you know, uh, you have a dozen donuts. You go to the bakery, you ask for a dozen donuts. In some culture, some country, if you didn't get a dozen donuts, if you got only 11 of them, then you could kill the baker, right? Which is why they would always throw in an extra donut, and that's why 13 is called a what? A baker's dozen just to make sure that I don't break the law by accident. In the event that we miscounted, there's still an extra in there, so you've got the dozen. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They would not only put one extra, but they would put two, three, four. They would put so many extra laws to protect around the law that when people saw them, they're like, man, these guys really love and are devoted to the law of God. And so these people who love the law, Jesus would come, and the people who were praised because of their devotion to the law Jesus would come and he would say, these guys are the epitome of the furthest from the kingdom of heaven. And so if you've got people who love the law and Jesus comes and he does not love these people who love the law in the way that they think he ought to love them, then naturally they think, well, he's come in opposition to the law of God. And so Jesus is saying, listen, I know you're going to think that. I know you're going to think that. But don't come. Don't think that I've come to do that. In fact, he says, listen, verse 18, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, meaning uh, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. I haven't, got, I haven't come to even get rid of the, 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 the smallest dot on the I or the smallest crossing of a T. I've come not to get rid of any of these things. In fact, I love the law so much more than you'll ever know. So then why, the question is asked, is why do we take the Old Testament law and why are there things in it that we disregard from it? I mean, I understand. Do not kill. We still punish killing. We still say that's wrong. Don't commit adultery, right? By and large, unless you are affiliated with like Ashley Madison or things like that, you still believe that this is true, part of the moral law. But then there are other things. There's other weird laws in the Old Testament. You know, Leviticus 19.27, it tells us the prescription. I look out, see, you guys, I can see something that y'all can't see. I can see many different, beautiful, wonderful haircuts. But in Leviticus 19.27, says there's only one haircut that you can get. And none of us have it. It says you can shave everything off, but you cannot touch the hair on the side of your head. So you imagine that, right? Imagine that bald up top, but you got hair coming out like it's almost like Albert Einstein action, right? Einstein was a Jew. Maybe he believed in, in, in this still. But the reverse mohawk was the only acceptable haircut according to the Old Testament law. That's crazy. But you don't see people wearing a reverse mohawk these days, do you? No. Why? And then there's another one in Exodus. I think it's Exodus 21.17. Exodus 21.17 says, If there is a rebellious teenager, then he or she must be taken out into the town and the townspeople can stone them. That's crazy. Right? Daniel would not have a youth ministry if we were still applying that today. (laughs) Right? Is there any teen who has not been rebellious to mom and dad? Because if you are, if you're living in Old Testament Jewish times, then the townspeople could stone you. That's crazy. And there's another one. I think it was Exodus 31.14 says, If anyone dishonors the Sabbath, does not honor the Sabbath, then they too face the death penalty. That means that maybe, as as, uh, Brother James was saying, with the start of football season, some people didn't come to church today. If you're living in the Old Testament times, then the punishment, if we caught you watching football instead of being at church, is that you die. 
That's crazy stuff. So why is it that some laws are still in effect today from the Old Testament and others are not? If we no longer stone teenagers, they, stone, they get stoned themselves. Just kidding. But if we no longer stone teenagers, okay, erase that. Uh, if they no, we no longer stone teenagers, okay, listen, then maybe the laws that prohibit homosexuality are no longer valid then. If the laws that say you shouldn't cook a baby goat in its mother's milk are no longer valid, then maybe these laws prohibiting certain sins are no longer in effect today as well. That's what people would say. So how do we know? How do we know? You have to understand that the people of Israel, God's holy people, chose them to be set apart, and they were given laws that would set them apart from all of the other nations so that people look at them and say, you guys are different. Now, Westminster Confession of Faith says there are three kinds of laws. Again, I'm teaching here, so just bear with me, but three kinds of laws. The question we have to ask is God gave laws to Israel is within this set of laws given to Israel, which of them are still applicable today, which of them are no longer applicable today, and which of them are applicable in some degree? Again, so three kinds of laws. The first law The first law is called the moral law. It's a law that was given, things like, it's kind of summarized in the Ten Commandments. Have no other gods before me. That's still binding on us today. Uh, Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Honor your father and mother. These are still laws that are morally binding on us today. They were uh, part of the creation of the world that God built these moral laws into the universe in the same way that uh, he built the laws of gravity into the universe. That these things don't change no matter what people say. And part of the way that you understand is, one, again, they're summarized in the Ten Commandments, but you also see that if it is explicitly stated in the New Testament, then it is still in effect in our lives today. This is the moral law, still binding on us today. Then there were the civil laws. Civil laws which were simply given to the people of Israel to govern them as the people of God. And amongst those things were things that I talked about. Honor the Sabbath, right? or else you get stoned. These things were to show that there is a God who's holy. Listen to your parents as the authority structure that God has placed in your life to show that authorities matter and that our God is holy. Right? Different commands like that don't weave two kinds of fabric together to show that there's a purity that God demands of the people of God. These are civil laws, and they are only given to the people of God, to the nation of Israel as a way of governing and guiding them as a nation state. And then there are these ceremonial laws, which talked about things like the ceremonies that the people of God would have, Passover, uh, the different uh, Feast of Tabernacles that reminded them of the wanderings of God and the faithfulness of God, the annual and the monthly and the weekly and the daily sacrifices that need to be offered. These were ceremonial laws that were pointing forward to the reality that in a sacrifice what's being pictured is that sin must be punished and that an innocent one is dying in place of the guilty. So as these three kinds of laws were given, Jesus is saying, listen, as I come into the world, you will no longer live under the rule and the authority of certain kinds of laws, but don't think that I've come to abolish them. I've come in order that I might fulfill them. Why? The moral law, Jesus is the only one who perfectly lived out in fulfillment of the moral law, the commands that were given to you and to me. He fulfilled the moral law by living it perfectly and by showing us how we ought to live. The civil laws are no longer binding on us today because we're no longer the nation of Israel. The people of God are no longer defined by our ethnic identity, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So that ethnic lines no longer matter, but we are the scattered sojourners walking amongst the different nations of the earth as the people of God defined by faith and the teachings of Scripture, not bound by the laws simply given to Israel. The ceremonial laws that were given to show that sin must be punished and innocent dying for the guilty was fulfilled when Jesus lived the perfect life that we failed to live, and then he died the death that we should have died, the innocent dying for the guilty. And what is Jesus saying? This is what he's saying. 
thing, listen, I have, don't think I've come to replace the law. I've come to fulfill it, to live in perfect fulfillment of it. The law, in essence, in other words, the law still matters. You still need to live by the teachings of the Word of God. Uh, we don't throw it out for the sake of grace. We don't throw it out for the sake of love. And we need to live in it. We need to embrace it. And we need to continue to teach this to people who come under the, uh, the heading of the family of God. That's the first thing. That's teaching. Now we'll continue on. The second thing that we see, second thing that we see then, our attitude towards the law determines greatness in the kingdom of God. Our attitude towards God's law determines greatness in God's kingdom. In every, in every area of life, I think most of us have a desire to be great, don't we? We want to be great at, at what we do. You, you've got 700 people in your graduating class. If you had a choice between, between being the greatest and the least, uh, you would choose to be the greatest, right? I think all of us would. And, and, and maybe there's some, some silly people out there saying, no, I want to be the least. No, we want to be the greatest. Muhammad Ali stood on top of the, uh, at, at a podium and, and talking about who he is as a boxer, he said, I'm the greatest. I'm the king of the world. And nobody wants to stand up there and say, I'm the worst in the history of the world. I have never won a fight ever. No, we want to say we're the greatest. You've got people, uh, you're a father, you're a mother. Now you want to be able to say, I'm a great mother. You don't want to say, yeah, you know what? My reputation, I'm the least of all the mothers in the world. No one wants that. We want to be great. And the aspiration and the ambition of our hearts ought to be, we want to be great for the kingdom of God. Why should it be different? And you want to, you want to just squeak by in the kingdom? You want to be the least in the kingdom? Right, why should it be any lower a standard for us when it comes to the things of God as it relates to the things of God, we should, we should long to, to want to be as great in God's kingdom as we do in the kingdom of the world. And in every area, there's a measurement for what greatness is. And Jesus says here, you want to be great? Let me spell it out. Verse 19. He says, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You want to be great in the kingdom. It says here, practices and teaches these commands. And then it says, who breaks what? Well, even the least of these commandments. Your attitude, in other words, towards even the smallest of commands is reflective of your attitude towards the law of God and your attitude towards the law of God. This is huge. Your attitude towards the law of God reflects your attitude towards God himself. Have you ever said, it's not that big a deal. It's just a little sin. Just a little sin. Just a small compromise. It's not really stealing. Is it cheating if everyone else is doing it? It's okay because it's not technically going all the way. Listen, our attitudes towards the least of the commands is a reflection of our attitude towards the God who gave those commands. When I do uh, premarital counseling, one of the things that we do, we do this activity where we list our personal Ten Commandments. Okay? We list our personal Ten Commandments because we come, you know, two people coming together have come with a completely different set of values. Yeah, we, may, we are both believers, but we come together with different expectations, with different upbringings. And so when you bring these things together, there's a complete set of laws that we live under. And so I'll say, hey, write out your Ten Commandments. Write out the things that are valued, that are important to you. And so people write things like, I'm not going to kiss you until the day of our wedding. And they'll say things like, um, my family means everything to me. And so please, can we spend at least every Thanksgiving with my family? Um, please don't ever disrespect me in public. Please don't ever criticize my cooking. Okay. 
please don't ever, whatever it is. And we have these, these commandments. People also say this when um, they come to me and they say, hey, you know what, uh, Pastor DL, I, I'm interested in, the, in this girl and I want to know, uh, I wanna know what, how, how can I do this well? How can I do this right? Um, and so sometimes I'll say, yeah, you want to do it right, don't do it at all. And so one person, one person said to me, the last three times I've come to you to ask for dating advice, you said, you said don't date. I said, how do you feel about that? And he said, if I had not listened to you, I'd be living in sin. It's important, right? It's important that we, 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 we do this right. There's too much at stake. And, and so you have these boundaries. And so a lot of people, and, and probably about, you know, in the past year, past two years, about 10 or 15 people have sent these uh, lists of, hey, here's how you create boundaries around your relationship. And so they'll say things like, yeah, no touching of private parts. Right? Be very clear about that. Be very clear. Again, no kissing. No wed, no bed. No contract, no contact. Right? Things like that. Very simple. And so... They've got these laws. They've got these things that they're very clear about. And so they come together and say, you know, this married couple, this dating couple, whatever it is, they're together. And someone said, hey, don't, please don't criticize my cooking. I take that very personally. And in front of all these people, the meal that your husband or your wife cooked, you call out and you say, you know what, why is this so burnt? Or in front of all these people, uh, she disses you in public and say, you know what, um, Man, when you came home the other day, you smelled so bad, but you came into bed, you didn't even take a shower. That was nasty. And so knowing these rules, right, you go to them and say, hey, hey, um, wasn't that one of their, like, personal Ten Commandments? And their response is, yeah, it's not, not that big a deal. I would say their relationship is on the brink of disaster. It's not a small thing because your attitude towards the law that was created is a reflection of your attitude towards the person who made that law because it means something to them. Right? There is a, there is a, a fissuring, there's a, there's a damaging, there's a, there's a, a, a slit in that relationship unless that's going to get fixed, it's going gonna, it's gonna to shipwreck. And how's your relationship with each other? How's your marriage? Do the little things that they've asked you not mean so much to you anymore? Right, check yourself, because your attitude towards their law is a reflection of your attitude towards that person. So what do you think, guys? What do you think? Just a little sin, not that big a deal. If it's big enough for God to call a law, it matters to him. How's your relationship with God? We oftentimes, guys, we begin with the wrong question, don't we? We ask ourselves, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with going to that club? What's wrong with doing that drug? What's wrong with smoking weed if I'm in, a, if I'm, I'm in Colorado? I'm in Washington. It's legal. What's wrong with these things? Already, already the attitude is how far can I get from the law of God without crossing over the line into sin? Your attitude towards the law of God betrays your attitude towards God. He says even the smallest one, even the least of these commands. You see, where are you in your relationship with God based on this rubric? Does you want to be great in the kingdom? Now you take the law of God seriously because God stands behind that. Now we talk a lot about Jesus is my homeboy. God is my sugar dad. He gives me whatever I need. But we don't talk a lot about the holiness of God. So we think that we can get away with 99.44% pure. God says the smallest of laws matters to me. Why does he say you'll be called least or greatest? Because check this out. He says in the same breath that he says uh, uh, whoever breaks one or whoever practices one, in the same breath, he says, and teaches others to do the same. Why? Because he's saying your attitude towards the law is always teaching other people what they ought to think about the law of God as well. Listen, you think, hey, you know what? That's cool. Let's skip church together. Let's skip church together. You're showing them, you're showing the person who you're saying, let's skip church together. You're showing them in your breaking of the law of God, the worth of God, and you're teaching them the same thing. Let's go against the law of God. You're sleeping around with your boyfriend or girlfriend. You shouldn't be. And you say, don't worry about it. Let's just do it. Let's just do it. That's fine. Let's do it. You're teaching the other person to disrespect the law of God. Because not only are you doing it, but you're teaching other people to do the same thing as well. 
this kind of hits home to me because my three kids, and I've come to realize, man, I love my kids a lot. But, but sometimes I, uh, I find myself scolding uh, my son. Partly because, I, you know, he's stronger than his sisters. And, and sometimes, like, he does things I think might hurt them. And so I say, Elijah, Elijah, even though it's, like, not that big a deal. And I've begun to hear recently our baby girl, Elise, when Elijah gets around her, he's not doing anything. He's, like, hugging her. She'll push him away and say, Elijah, Elijah, the same tone that I use to call him out. And I think to myself, I don't want to create a monster in my daughter. But what I'm doing through my actions is I'm teaching her a certain attitude that she ought to have towards the things around her. Everything that we're doing, people of God, is teaching other people. Everything that we do towards the least of the commands of God Our attitude towards God's law reflects our attitude towards God, and therefore our attitude towards God's law is what determines greatness in the kingdom of God. Second thing, last thing, heaven is impossible to get into without Jesus. Verse 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and their teacher of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Can you, uh, let me read that again. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teacher law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now listen, if you're a Jewish person and you're hearing this, right? The epitome of righteousness is the Pharisees. They not only honor the law, but they honor the laws that they've created around the laws. And if anybody, they were so, so concerned about every detail of the law. You remember Jesus said this, that they would get their spices, right? They would get their spices and they would tithe a tenth of it. So they'd get their mint, their dill, their cumin. They would get all these things and they would put it out and they would break it in half and then break that in half and then a tenth of it and they would give that to God. And people are looking at, man, how much they love the law of God. They loved the law so much that they would tithe every part of their income, everything that God, there's so meticulous to detail about obeying the law of God. And then Jesus says, you've got to be more righteous than that. There's a saying in those days that if there's two people in heaven, it will be the Pharisees and the scribes. <laughs> that was a saying in those days. And if the Pharisees cannot get in, we need to be more righteous than them, then we've got to be more, more righteous than the perfect, more righteous than the most righteous of people. So in their mind, they're thinking, we can't get in. There's no, there's no way. But Jesus' view of the Pharisees was different. The people, these Pharisees that were put up on a pedestal by those who wanted to honor the law of God, Jesus didn't put on a pedestal. Instead, they're the ones that he criticized the most. Why? In another place, Jesus called them, this word that nobody wants to be called, but he looked at them and he says, you Pharisees, woe to you, you hypocrites. What is a hypocrite? A hypocrite, that word comes from the Greek word. That means an actor. Somebody who would go up onto the stage on a Greek theater and they would wear a mask. And they would do all of these things on stage and people would see them, they would applaud them and they would come off the stage, they would take off their mask and they would be a different person. Jesus is looking through the heart of the Pharisees, through their actions and says, you know what? People might look at you and say you are good from afar, but I see you up close and I see that you are far from good because your heart is not in it. The righteousness of the Pharisees was an external righteousness that wanted to do everything right on the outside. But you remember what Jesus says, you've done these things, but you've ignored the weightier aspects of the law. You've forgotten mercy and kindness and justice. They had the art, but they didn't have the heart. What about you? People may look at you and say, you know what? They're doing great. 
They're always at church. Perfect attendance. 15 years running. They're great. But is your heart in obedience to Jesus? They had the art. That's all they had. The second thing is that they were self-righteous about it. They thought, hey, look at me. Look at all the great things that I'm doing. But they would look down at the other people, the tax collectors and the public, and they would look at them and say, you know what? I, I'm glad I'm not like them. I fast two times a week. The law said you fast once a year. During Yom Kippur, they said we fast twice a week. Twice a week. I'm not like those guys. And they were self-righteous about it. And they looked down on other people who didn't meet their standard of godliness and holiness. Do you do that? You look at people who don't come to house church every week and say, what's wrong with them? And if they were like me and they came every week, they'd be so much more holy and spiritual. But man, why'd they miss church? Why'd they miss church again? I bet I know what they were doing. I bet they were out late last night. They couldn't wake up today. And we looked down on other people. That's what the Pharisees did because they were self-righteous. They thought, I, can, I did it, but you guys don't do it. Don't do it right. They were self-dependent. They thought that because they did these things right, that they could gain favor with God. Hey, look at all the times I've gone on a mission trip. Look at all the times I've been at prayer meeting. Look at all the people who call me their spiritual leader. Ha, look at me. Surely I got something. I'm going to stand before heaven. I'm going to give this to God and say, God, here it is. They were self-dependent. And Jesus is saying, you know what? There's a hole in their holiness. The giant hole. He says, listen, you need to be more righteous than them. What did he mean? Did you need to be more righteous in the fact that, in the sense that it's not just an external thing. It's an internal thing. That you honor and love and serve God because you want to. Not because you have to. Not to please people, but because you want to love God. If nobody saw what you did, would you still do it? If nobody saw you come to prayer, if nobody else came to prayer meeting, would you still come? If nobody ever knew that you were coming to prayer meeting, would you, or nobody ever knew the things that you were, you were, you were praying about, would you, would you still do it? If you never got anything out of it, would you still do it? Would you still love God? Would you still serve him if no one ever praised you for it? If for the rest of your life, as you taught our youth students, nobody ever said thank you as, you walk, as they walked out the door, would you be okay doing that? Because you're doing it for God alone. You all right with that? Jesus is saying, this is the righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees. An inner righteousness that is not self-righteous, but says, I do these things out of gratitude, out of love, out of joy, because you've done this for me. When's the last time you obeyed simply out of the sheer joy of wanting to love him? The last time you obeyed God and served him just because you loved him. I will serve you because I love you. You have given life to me. When's the last time? Have you ever? Have you ever? served God, and obeyed God simply out of love. I'll tell you what, I think most of us have, and I'll tell you when. When you first gave your life to Jesus. All of a sudden, your life changed, and you said, you know what? I want to love God. I want to pray. I want to go to church. I want to spend time with him. I want to run away from sin. Do you remember when your heart changed? And when you wanted to do that, not because people tell me, not because people are watching me, not because I can gain something from God, but simply because I have a relationship with Jesus. You remember that, don't you? A relationship changes everything. One of our uh, brothers in here, house church shepherd for the Middle East house church, name is Seho. He's a strong man. He loves football and basketball. He does CrossFit. He's strong and muscular. Ever since he started working out with me, he's gotten huge. But he's a big man. Loves eating meat. Used to work at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. I remember we ate at Ruth's Chris one time. Massive steak. I loved it. So delicious. But about a, a little bit over a year ago, notice that Seho started changing. Started like being nicer. Started like caring about people a little bit more. 
go out to eat. I'm like, yo, I'm going to get a steak. What are you going to get? He's like, I might get a, a steak salad. I'm like, what? What's wrong with you? What's going on? And other times be like, ah, I feel like eating chicken today. Chicken? What's going on? And I started putting the piecing, and I realized about a little bit over a year ago, ago Seho got married to Jane. And, and, and Jane eats differently than Seho used to eat. And so I realized that he began changing. I said, hey, uh, the one time we were eating, and I forgot he's eating something super healthy, and I wasn't at that place yet, and so I was still eating my, you know, whatever. I said, hey, um, does Jane make you eat that? And, and this is what he said. He said, nah, man. Actually, I like it. <laughs> I was like, Wow. Something changed in him. When you begin a relationship with somebody, you begin to want the things that they want. Now you begin to change. And when you start a relationship with Jesus, your desires begin to change. And he's saying this is the only way, the only way that your, that your righteousness can surpass that of the Pharisees. The reason the Pharisees will never have it is because they don't think they need Jesus. Because they've done so much in obedience to the law. Why do I need somebody else to win it for me? Only the ones who realize that we can't do it are the ones who call out for the righteousness of another and say, Lord, I need you. Jesus, I need you. There is, according to Romans 3, or according to uh, Philippians 3, there is a righteousness that comes apart from the law, that comes by faith, that comes through Jesus. Jesus saying, listen, unless your righteousness is greater than that of the Pharisees, you're not going to enter heaven. And it's what causes people to throw themselves upon Jesus and say, I need you. Because unless I have you, my heart's not going to change. I can't do it. Some of you may know this uh, because you saw it on Facebook, but um, earlier this week, on Friday, I, I had a lunch meeting at a downtown restaurant, 18th floor of a uh, particular place. I, I Googled this place uh, last night, and it said an exclusive private club for blah, 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 blah. I was like, all right, that's cool. I, I wish I'd known that before. So I... The people I was meeting, I was, two of them were lawyers. One was a doctor, one was an IT guy. And so I said, oh, I, I think, you know, they probably will come dressed nicely. And so I said, I'm going to dress kind of nicely. And so I wore a, a button-down shirt, and I wore the nicest shorts that I had. Because it's like, it's Florida. It's like super hot still. I wore these nice golf shorts that my friends had bought me. And I wore these, like, cool-looking Crocs that don't look like regular Crocs. They're not the ones with holes in them. <laughs> they look like loafers, Okay. They look like loafers. They're cool looking. They look like Kobe's cool shoes right there, whatever they're called. They're cool looking, all right? And they look formal. And so I got to this place, parking garage, windy, you know, and I, I park. And, and so I, I walked into the thing, and it said, this is the name of the restaurant. And so it said, you got you to gotta go through the elevator. I went to the elevator, and I got there, and there was no signs. It didn't say anything. So I walked in the elevator. I was like, where am I going to go? 18th floor, there's a button, and then it said the name of the restaurant. I said, okay, this is cool. I said, wow, 18th floor, that's kind of like, you know, moving on up, right? This 18th floor, downtown, you can see a lot of stuff. And so push the button. As soon as I got out, I could tell this was an exclusive club. As soon as I got out, nicely dressed people, and everyone is like greeting. They're so nice. Like, sir, 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 um, do you have a reservation? And I'm like, yeah, they're, my friends are over here. And I start, kept walking, and another person's like, hi, can I help you? I was like, yeah, I'm going over here. And another person, hey, hey, hey. And, and the people who didn't talk to me, they all were like staring at me. So I was like, man, this is like a, a good hair day. Or maybe uh, they really like the way I, I dress today. I mean, I picked nice clothes and a color scheme. This is like really cool. And, and so I stopped at the front desk because someone stopped me there, and they were like, uh, sir, what's the name of the group you're with? And I said, I, I told them the name, and they said, no, we don't see that on there. And I said, I saw one of the other guys at the, at the sitting area. There's like a little putting green there. And, and, and so the guy was sitting there, and so I said, hey, he, he's one of my group. I'll go wait with him until uh, the guy who made the reservation comes. I sat down, and I'm talking with him, looking out the window, see the uh, Orlando City Soccer Stadium and all of these beautiful sights in Orlando. And then this, like, really good-looking guy, nicely dressed, baller, walks up to me. And he sticks out his hand. He's like, hey, 
My name is Steve. I'm the owner of the name of the restaurant. It's good to meet you. And I said, wow, man, this guy's like cool. So I said, hey, I'm DL. It's great to meet you. This is a really nice place, a great view here. And he's like, hey, listen, he leans over to me and he whispers in my ear. He says, before you get too far into lunch, I want to let you know that we've got a dress code here and you don't meet it. I said, uh, okay, <laughs> do you have any pants back there or anything? <laughs> He's like, I'm sorry. So I looked at the guy and I was like, hey, uh, I just got kicked out of this place. <laughs> and he's like, oh, yeah, that's too bad. And so I started, this is like the walk of shame. Because I'm like at the window. So I'm walking through and all these people that had looked at me. I, all of a sudden I realized, you know, they weren't looking at me because I was all that. They're looking at me because I wasn't all that. They weren't looking at me because I was good. They're looking at me because I was not good. That was so sad. So sad. Why are you laughing at me? So sad. It was like they said seafood buffet on Fridays is really good. And, and I couldn't get in. And I was just looking at it. I was like smelling it. And I was like, I certainly don't have pants in the car. So I just put a quick message on Facebook. I said, help. Anyone have pants? <laughs> I went into the elevator. And I got in my car to look, and I, I searched my app, and I said, what's the nearest Target or Walmart or something like that? And so I was going, I got a ping in, and Jonathan Fong, <laughs> I've got pants for you. And so he said, I, I, I mapped it out. I was like, three minutes away. I was like, ah, oh, thank you, Jesus. And so I went there, and as I'm going, the guy's texting me. They're like, hey, uh, we could eat somewhere else if you want. I said, no, I think I can get in. So I got to, I got to the offices of Fong Tax, and I said, hey, uh, you got extra pants? He's like, no, but I can wear your shorts. <laughs> so uh, mine was a size 34, okay? His is a size 30. <laughs> So long story short, we made the exchange. He gave me what I needed in order to get in, and he took the stuff that caused so much shame, and he wore it himself. <laughs> and I walked back there. I got up, and all of a sudden, I'm walking with a little bit of a strut. What's up, y'all? <laughs> I'm back. Clothed in the righteousness of another. Faultless stand before Steve, the owner, so that I could get in. Listen, this is what we need. One day Jesus is going to have everyone stand before him in heaven. And the Pharisees are going to stand up there. And it's going to be a rude awakening on that day when they think that they've got everything that they need. People are looking at them. They think we've got it. They're staring at us because we've done it all right. And they get before the throne of grace. And there's a choice. Either you will lean on your own righteousness or you will lean on the righteousness of another. Jesus says, listen, it's as simple as that. Either you take my righteousness upon yourself and you let me take your unrighteousness and you believe that I lived the perfect life in your place and that I died on the cross for you. Clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless stand before the throne. That's what we sing when we say, my one defense. It's not look at all the things that I've done. It's not look how long I've been going to church. My one defense, my righteousness will be Jesus Christ. Oh God, how I need you. That's the only plea that we will have when we stand before God. So stop trying. Stop trying to do it on your own. Stop trying to earn your way in. Trust in him and in relationship with him, your heart will be changed. So that what you need to do will become what you want to do. What you ought to do will then become one with what you long to do. And in that place, the circumcision of your heart, Keller says, is what shows that you're a follower of Christ. Two options. Lean on yourself. Lean on Christ. Simple as that. Let's pray. Let's uh, take a moment right now and think about if you're to stand before God right now, what is your plea? Is it all that you've done for Jesus? Or is it all that Jesus has done for you? Again, Pastor Sam said this last week, if you're so focused on what you're doing for Jesus, 
One, you will not get in, and two, you'll get burnt out. But if you focus on what Jesus has done for you, uh, you'll be granted entrance into kingdom of heaven, your heart will be changed, and you'll be able to live the life you're meant to live. And for whom are you living? Who are you seeking to please? Who do you do your deeds of righteousness before? Let's come before the Lord and let's surrender to him and say, Lord, I need you. Help me to be who you want me to be. And if you have not yet put your trust in Jesus Christ, I would invite you to do that now. Say, Lord Jesus, I cannot stand on my righteousness. I lean on you. Would you come into my life, be my Savior, and be my Lord? Let's pray together for a few moments, and then I will continue on in responding to the, to the Lord. Father in heaven, for those of us who are not yet children of God, for whatever reason, maybe because we thought we could earn it, maybe we think that we don't need you. Lord, if we're not yet a child of God, I pray that you would help us, that your spirit would convict us in order that we might put our trust in you. Father, for those of us who are, for whom obedience is a joy because we know for whom we do it, because our hearts have been changed and the ought to and want to are one and the same. Lord, may we continue to remember the beauty of Jesus that won us, that saved us, that causes our obedience to be a delight, not a duty. For those of us who've given our lives to you, and at one point there was such a joy in following you because we knew you and we're walking with you in intimacy. Lord, maybe we've stumbled and struggled and slipped away along the way. Pray, Father, that you would awaken us to see that we would come back to the heart of it all, that we would repent. And maybe that's why sanctification and changing to become more like you has been slow for us because we've forgotten you and we've wandered away. Lord, change us and mold us. And for each of us, I pray that the teachings that we've heard today would be placed deep in our hearts so that not only we would live from it and love it, but that as we spend the next nine weeks looking at these hard teachings of Jesus, that we would continue to hear them through the lens and see them through the lens of this foundational truth, these foundational truths, that we're only righteous because of you and in you and for you, by you and through you. So help us, Lord. We love you because you've loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name.